We're continuing a sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and that is all about our place in God's plan. And as with all the the readings at the moment through the short series, I'm afraid there's far too much in the Bible reading today for us to cover in one sermon, so please, I do encourage you, I really beg you to make sure you do go away and read this letter. It doesn't take very long, but just by sitting down and reading this letter and these chapters, you will just discover the richness that we can only just scratch at during uh, these times together. And this letter could be transcribed, I think I've said this before at the beginning, this could also be transcribed as a sort of manifesto for all church communities. And it's been chosen very deliberately for our autumn series because it feels particularly pertinent for St. Matthew's today as we respond to God's call to focus on being a church that is truly welcoming in the deepest sense of God's love, embracing all we meet in our parish and our communities in which we live. That we are vibrant in the widest sense of being a community that truly reflects God's church on earth, full of the energy of all ages, the diversity and difference culturally and socially, and serving our community. This parish community in which this building has been for over a hundred years, and the communities in which we live, in the ways we live, work and minister as disciples of Jesus Christ, in our homes, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces, and in and through and out from this church. And the passage today is chapter 4 that uh, was kindly read for us. And this passage marks a significant change in focus in Paul's letter so far. In the first part of the letter, in chapters 1 to 3, which Richard, Rob and Helen have spoken into, Paul has in that first part been unfolding the eternal purposes of God throughout history. Through Jesus, who died for us sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something completely new. Not just for our individual lives, but for a new society, a completely new society, a new creation. We read that humanity that was fractured and broken is reconciled and united in Jesus. And now... From chapter 4 onwards, Paul moves on to looking at what is expected from this new humanity. What is expected from this new community of faith, this new society, this new body. And as we see a marked change in the tone of the letter, we hear from Paul about what God has done and also therefore what we must do as the family of Christ. So right at the beginning, verse 1, look at this with me. I say again those words at the beginning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. All humility, gentleness, patience, etc., etc. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, says Paul, beg you. And remember Paul is both a physical prisoner in Rome but he is also a willing spiritual prisoner of all that binds him to Jesus Christ. He is a prisoner of the Lord in those different ways. And in that situation, 
he appeals to those Christians in Ephesus from the depths of his heart. He solemnly appeals to them and he solemnly appeals to us as he begs us to lead that life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What this life of calling is like is, of course, completely determined by the nature of God himself. This calling that we have is not determined by us, our decisions, how we decide to shape it. This calling is utterly determined by the nature of God himself, the God who is love. It is determined by the nature and the character of the divine God who calls you and me. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. We are called to be as Christ in our world. It's so easy in the business of daily life for us to jump straight to our own personal understanding of what a life worthy of the calling of God is all about. And then afterwards, to remember to clothe it up in the things of God and faith. But of course, it should be the other way around, shouldn't it? Leading and living a life worthy of the divine calling to which you and I have been called can only be determined by and reflective of that nature of the divine call. It can only be reflective of the nature of the divine call, the God who is love. God's nature is love. God is love, and those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. So it starts every day, freshly, with God and not with us. Some of you might have been at the wonderful 5pm service last week when Dennis Adid came to speak to us. And he talked about undiluted love. What it means to try and live lives of undiluted love. And he reflected on how difficult it is for us to really seek after justice and mercy with all the stuff of the world around us. The God who is love is undiluted love. And when we take hold of the utterly new kind of society that God wants his church to be, then what will happen is that it will stir inside us a godly, a spirit-led discontent and a restlessness with how things are. And then it will also fill us with a spirit-filled energy and joy to pray and work for the total renewal of society and the church which Jesus came to bring. And I was touching on that in the smallest way in my notice this morning. That renewal that Jesus came to bring that makes a radical difference to our purpose, all coming from the nature of the God who is love. So what are the key characteristics, so to speak, of a life worthy of the calling to which God has called us? Well, in this chapter, Paul spells them out. And the central strand running through the whole of the section is unity. It is headed up, unity 
and maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 is one that quite a few of you will have heard me quote at different times, time and again, whether it's meetings or ever. as something that I will always personally strive for. See what it says? Paul says, make every effort, every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And all through these verses, the unity, the oneness, the togetherness of the Church of Christ is exhorted by Paul the whole time. From verse 4 onwards, you just have to read through the section and you will see unity, 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 unity. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. For the building up of the body of Christ, verse 12, until all come to the unity of the faith, verse 13, as each part is working together, promoting the body's growth and building itself up in love, verse 14. That's a powerful message, isn't it? Verse after verse after verse. But it's sad, isn't it, when we look out into the world and see, or indeed we find ourselves part of disunity. It is really difficult. It hurts. And when I speak about conflict next week, I'll be speaking into what the Bible says about conflict It seems that all news feeds are stuffed full of narratives of strife and conflict all the time, from the personal to the national and the international. On a news bulletin recently, the items were as follows. An overseas shooting tragedy, a UK strike, the economic crisis, a dispute between opposing politicians, an assault trial, then joy, currency markets and the weather. You'll be forgiven for believing that nothing good happens in our world which is newsworthy. Only things which are the consequences of division and brokenness or cause division and brokenness. We need to know those things. Of course we do. We need to respond to the brokenness of the world. We need to know it. But we also need to remind ourselves that there is great good. The goodness of God in the world that is the spur to respond to all of these things. And we recognise that working for unity is often really, really tough, both personally and globally. It's also very painful, as I said earlier, for all involved. But we are exhorted by Paul to always make every effort, every effort, not a few efforts, every effort, I have the privilege of ministering in the church, in this diocese, as someone who helps train in transforming conflict in the church. And I'm also a trained mediator within the church. And much is often written about unity. But we all know that we also find disunity in the Church of Christ, which is not easy. And I'm just going to pause for a few moments quiet now before I go on with the rest of my sermon because I understand that this is tough stuff for each of us whether it's the struggles of conflict within the workplace or in our family lives or with friends 
or within churches. Every single one of us carries the scars and the hurts of this. So I'm just going to give us a little bit of space now, a little bit of quiet, for us to begin bring this before God and ask for his grace and help before I continue on with the rest of my sermon. So let's hold some quiet and ask for the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and our confusions and any disunity that we have experienced or are experiencing. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are love. And you pour out your love into our world, in and through Jesus Christ. We bring before you now all our hurts and our confusions through conflict and disunity. We ask, Heavenly Father, for your forgiveness. Well, we need that forgiveness. We ask, loving God, for your healing. Well, we need that healing. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, for your peace. Peace to know that you have heard our prayers. You answer them. And that you take this upon yourself. For our sakes. Amen. So, it is all the more vital for us to look at these verses in Ephesians. So that they can stimulate and encourage me and you, freshly, to strive always for Christian unity. Which is characterised by maturity, as Paul says in this letter. It is characterised by going deeper with Christ so that our maturity of faith and understanding grows deeper and stronger. And that is the thing that leads to church growth and faith. Someone once said, the snowflake is one of nature's most fragile things. But just look at what they can do when they stick together. True oneness, true togetherness is strong, it is powerful, and it is beautiful. And I have to say, brothers and sisters, how deeply encouraged I have been by this community of faith over this past year. Welcoming new people, getting to know new friends, stepping outside of our comfort zones to do different things, rebuilding church community after the most difficult time. I thank you for the huge encouragement of those steps to unity and oneness which this community is taking and is trying to take. And I thank God for you and all that you are doing in that. How beautiful is oneness in Jesus Christ. There is so much in this passage to absorb. And I said earlier, we have too little time. So make time to sit with it. But for now, I'm just going to accept some help from the great theologian John Stott. And he summarised four truths about the kind of oneness which God intends his new society, his new creation to enjoy, and in which Paul addresses in this letter. Firstly, this oneness of God depends on the charity, says Stott, of our character and our conduct. Look at verse 2. We are to lead the life 
to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We are reminded and we're exhorted to constantly bear the fruit of the Spirit of God. Love embraces all of these, of course. So a question. What are the opposites of these? Have a think. And we can see how quickly disunity can arise. Secondly, the oneness of God arises from the unity of God himself. Verses 3 to 6. There is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Intimately united in a way that we can only imagine that we will experience when we see God face to face. When you think of the utter unity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does this look like for you? Thirdly, this this oneness of God is enriched, Paul says in this chapter, by the diversity of our community and by the diversity of all our many different gifts. This is in verses 7 to 12. Each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were, and then he goes to list some of those gifts. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until, Paul says, all of us come to the unity of the faith. That is the aim of this constant maturing to come together, more and more and more. The togetherness grows and grows and grows into that wonderful, beautiful maturity of faith, until we come to the unity of the faith. What, God, what gifts has God given you? God has given every single person here gifts. Nobody has been left off his list. And how can you use them to help build up Christ's church? And finally, John Stott says, this oneness of God to which we are called, he says, demands the maturity of our growth. Again, verses 13 to 16. Building up the body of Christ is a long process. It takes time. Again, you would have heard me say more than once, written on our foreheads all our lives, however old or young we are, is that phrase, works in progress. It is a long process. And we need to recognise that. And in verse 13, at the end, Paul speaks of when we will come to this unity in faith. Some versions, other versions, talk about attaining this or reaching this. The verb in the original Greek is kataneo, and that literally means come to meet. And in our onward journey of faith, and in our constant growing together as one body of Christ, to become one as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, we will constantly seek to mature in that growth on a lifelong journey towards the time when we shall come to meet Jesus face to face. When we will finally and utterly be made completely new in him at the end of all time. The unity of the church needs to be both maintained now, verse 3, We make every effort always to maintain the unity of the church, the body and the bond of peace, while also seeking to constantly, over time, mature. So that one day we shall 
reach, we shall attain this goal. We shall come to, verse 13, full unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. I know there's at least one wine lover here, so he can correct me if this is wrong. But take a good wine, or if there are cheese lovers here, take a good cheese. They can taste good when they are young, can't they? But the more they are nurtured over time, the more they grow in maturity. On that ongoing journey to the perfect taste and the perfect fulfilment. So what are you and I doing today to mature our growth in faith day by day? Unity and constantly growing maturity in the body of Christ are the key to a growing church. A church which will not then, as Paul says, be tossed to and fro and blown about. And this is the Apostle Paul's vision of the church. A community which displays, in the words of John Stott, that old-fashioned but wonderful word, charity. A community which displays unity, diversity and a growing maturity. We are to be one people and we are to be also a holy people. It takes conscious and deliberate acceptance and commitment. But there is nothing more beautiful, nothing more wonderful to aspire to and to seek all our lives, every single day of our lives, to attain, to come to know. I'm going to end with a little story. There was once an old monastery that had fallen on hard times. It had once thrived, but now only had five very elderly monks. A few miles away lived an old hermit. One day the monks decided to visit him for advice. Perhaps he would show them what they could do to save the monastery. The hermit welcomed the five old monks to his hut. They explained their problem. Yes, I understand, he said. The spirit has gone out of the people. Hardly anyone cares for the old things anymore. Is there anything you can tell us to help save the monastery? asked the abbot. No, I'm sorry, said the hermit. All I can tell you is that one of you is an apostle of God. An apostle is someone appointed by Christ to share the good news. All I can tell you is that one of you is an apostle of God. The monks were both disappointed and confused. They returned to the monastery wondering what he could have meant by one of you is an apostle of God. They felt it was impossible. They were too old, too insignificant. On the other hand, what if it was true? Which one of them was it? Could it be the abbot? Yes, probably. He'd been their leader for more than a generation. Or maybe he meant Brother Thomas. Thomas was certainly holy, a man of wisdom and light. He couldn't have meant Brother Elred, too crotchety and too difficult to reason with. On the other hand, Elred was almost always right about things. Surely he can't have meant Brother Philip. 
He was so passive, so shy, a real nobody. But on the other hand, loyal and trustworthy and always there when you needed him. And certainly the hermit didn't mean me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet what if he did? Suppose I am an apostle of God. Me? Oh no, not me. I couldn't be that. It would be too much. Or could I? As they contemplated in this way, the monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect on the off chance that one of them might be the apostle of God. And each monk began to treat himself with extraordinary respect too, just in case he was the apostle of God. The monastery was in a beautiful forest and many people came to picnic and walk and now and then go into its tiny chapel to pray and reflect. Over time they began to sense the extraordinary respect that radiated from the five old monks and which permeated the atmosphere making it strangely attractive. People began to bring their friends and their friends brought more friends. As more visitors came, some younger men began to talking with the old monks. And after a while, one joined the monastery, then another, then another. Within a few years, the monastery was once again thriving. And thanks to the hermit's wisdom, a vibrant centre of light and spirituality throughout the region. Thanks be to God.